Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we continue our series in this rich book. We come to what may be a favorite passage to many of you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under the chairs in front of you, and I encourage you to grab one. Even if maybe you're not a Christian, but you came with a friend this morning, or it's your first time in church, uh, you'd be helped by having the Bible open and following along as as we read it together. And you'll find 1 Corinthians 13 on page 1,150 on those, uh, in those Bibles. In his book, uh, Leading with Love, author named Strauch, he says it's no exaggeration to say that the Bible is a book of love. The story of the gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, is the greatest love story ever told. He goes on to describe, you know, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God by your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we walk through other passages, we see that leaders, when leaders in the church are are told how they're to live, it says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, and so on, show yourself an example of those who believe. One of the key attributes of a leader is to be a loving leader. 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction as we're teaching the word here, as you're studying the word at home, as you're in a small group, as you're teaching kids, the goal of the instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's not just knowledge that ends in itself. It's knowledge that should lead to love. Ephesians chapter 4, in a passage that much like 1 Corinthians, where we're in the middle of, is talking about different gifts and the way they function in the body as it describes the purpose and interaction of these gifts. Notice what it says. It says, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, meaning what we all bring together to minister to one another, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's what these gifts are to do, is to build up the body, but to build it up in love, not just numbers or finances or something like that. You think of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. This, these attributes in a person that the Spirit of God produces within. The very first one mentioned is it's love. Joy, peace, patience, but, but love is the very first one mentioned. And yet, it can be so easy for us to substitute something else as kind of the, the goal. Maybe it's knowledge for knowledge's sake. Power or entertainment, comfort, or even a defensive position against the culture. But in the middle of this book that is pressing hard, correcting the Corinthians on a lot of different things, and then in the middle, very middle of a section that's all about spiritual gifts, gives this beautiful, poetic, urgent section on love. And I want you to notice at the very end of chapter 12, before chapter 13, which goes through all these things, the very end of chapter 12, it says, Earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. And it's just way of love. He says, this is the more excellent way. The more excellent way for what? It's the more excellent way to live. It's the more excellent way to have an impact. 
It's not, it's not their knowledge that will have the most impact. It's not their giftedness. It's not their speaking abilities, their showy gifts. He says it's love. And that is a message for us as well. Few passages are as beloved as this passage. And yet sometimes when there's a passage that's familiar to us, our eyes just kind of glance over it. Because we're like, yeah, I know this, I know this. And yet, man, we, we, we need to listen to this message. And so I want to encourage you, whether you've heard this a hundred times or the first time, uh, listen to what the word says. We'll break this down into a few different weeks, but I want to go ahead and read the whole chapter now. It's not very long. It's only 13 verses. And then we'll just cover the first about four verses today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Again, the very end of chapter 12 says, I show you a still more excellent way. And then chapter 13, verse 1 begins this way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I, give, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's cover this really in a couple parts today. The absolute necessity of love, and then we'll start looking at some active characteristics of love. In this first part here, the absolute necessity of love. We see in these first three verses, and he lists off some different gifts taken to the extreme with, with hyperbole. For each of them, he says, it's not just could I have the gift of languages, of tongues, that he's talked about in chapter 12 and we'll talk about in chapter 14, but it's as if I had it to the extreme and could speak not only in human languages, but angelic languages. If there, if there could be such a thing, he says, but if it's separated from love, it's nothing. Likewise, if the prophecy is all the way to the extreme of knowing everything, but don't have love, it's, it's nothing. So each one, there's a deliberate hyperbole. We'll walk through them. Notice the first one, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, he could be referring to eloquent speech or, or this gift of languages, of speaking a language he did not know. He says, even if I had that to the fullest, but don't have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, the very most gifted speech, apart from love, it's like the banging of a cymbal. 
One pastor, in teaching on this, he, he brought out a, a metal pot and a hammer. And as he read this passage and taught on it, he started whacking the pot with the hammer. And it was gong, gong. But then he just kept reading and kept talking. And, and he said the audience, they laughed at first, but he kept hitting. <laughs> and they stopped laughing, and he kept hitting. And the laughter turned to annoyance. I actually thought about doing that here, but I don't know if I could pull it off. Uh, and, and he said, that is, it's the idea. You know what that would be like to have that ringing in your ears. He says, loving, or uh, the most excellent speech apart from love is like that. Now, in a moment, we'll get to what does he mean by love? But a little preview of it. it it's not just saying, I love you. Like, Eloquent speech doesn't become loving speech because you add the word, hey, I love you, at the end. Or, or with a certain tone of voice. No, love is what it does. Love is patient. Love is kind, and so on. And so the point is, if there's the most gifted speech, but the life lived doesn't match it with love, then that speech becomes meaningless. In fact, it becomes obnoxious and even harmful. I'm going to give you what's maybe sort of a, an extreme example, but it's on my mind because uh, uh, something I read about it this week. So one of my favorite professors at, at seminary was probably the most gifted preacher that, that I've listened to. No offense, Tom. Um, uh, he's, he, he, uh, he was great. I, I could listen to him all day long. His classes were like sitting under an excellent sermon. And, and he was... He had a way of just bringing eloquence to it. He would travel around teaching on preaching. But about two years ago, he was removed from his position uh, because of an affair. And it was an affair that learned this week more about it. It was with a, with a student. And it wasn't merely an affair, but it was a situation where he had manipulated this person by twisting scripture over a period of years to pursue this illicit relationship with the student. And, and he himself was married as well. Gifted speech, but among the many ways you could describe his life would be a lack of love, right? Because love does not seek its own, and he was very much seeking his own in this. Love does not act unbecomingly. That is an example, extreme example, but, but any time that we prioritize language, teaching, speech, but we divorce it from a loving life, we're guilty of this. He, he goes on to say, knowledge without love is nothing. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries, all knowledge, again, that's the extreme. He says, if I can know everything and communicate it, but it's apart from love, I, I, I am nothing. We've already seen this emphasis, actually, in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 13, but look a few chapters back to chapter 8, verse 1. In chapter 8, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. He says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. I think each of these examples that he gives in these first few verses of chapter 13 are tailored to specific weaknesses that he's already identified with this church. They valued 
clever speech in human wisdom we saw in chapters 1 and 2. And he says that speech and wisdom apart from love is nothing. They, they valued knowledge, but he says apart from love, it's nothing. They valued more showy gifts, but he says apart from love, it's nothing. Friends, I think there's a warning for us here as well. We're a church that, that values sound teaching. We always have. It's been a part of our DNA uh, for, for decades we, we prize sound doctrine. We emphasize sound teaching. We have Sunday school classes for adults that are geared towards really pressing into theology and scripture and applying it to life. Our youth and college ministries, they emphasize, they emphasize teaching and instruction. We highlight good books in our resource center. And yet the warning here is that there could be a pursuit of knowledge without love. And it says that, that renders it meaningless. We might take seriously a verse like 2 Timothy 1.13. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Retain. That's what we want to do. We want to hold fast to sound teaching. We want to pass it on to the next generation and the generation after that. And that is a valuable thing. That is a, a necessary thing. And yet the passage goes on. To say, we are to do this in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. If we accomplish this, apart from this, then we render that knowledge functionally meaningless. It must issue forth in love. Former president of Moody Bible Institute named George Sweeting. And Moody is another institution that values sound teaching. He, he says this, Too often Christians are concerned about hidden truth but indifferent to loving difficult people. This is too often we're concerned about hidden truth, knowing hidden truth, but we're indifferent to loving those people that are hard to love. It is an indication of violating this verse. He goes on to talk about the gift of faith. He says, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains. Even using the language that Jesus does of faith that can move mountains. He says, if I have all of that, but apart from love, it, it's nothing. Again, we, we value, we esteem solid faith in the Lord. Romans 5.1 says we are justified by faith. Ephesians 2.8, we are saved by faith. 1 Corinthians 16.13, we stand by faith. Galatians 2.20, we live by faith. This confident trust in God's promises. And yet he says, if I have that, but apart from love... Well, frankly, I think we can question the reality of that faith. Uh, James 2 talks about the need for a living faith that's a transformative faith. And so if I say I have faith and yet my life is consistently demonstrating a lack of love, there's reason to wonder what is my faith really in? What is the content, the significance of my faith? He goes on to describe sacrificial giving. Without love, he says, if I give all my possessions, again, with hyperbole, I give it all. I even surrender my body to be burned. Either The language there is either of willing martyrdom or a willingness to even sell myself into slavery, which was a, a possibility at the time, to take that money to give away. The, the language there could refer to that as well. Either way, it's great self-sacrifice. But he says, apart from love, it's, it's nothing. D.A. Carson he, he describes this, he says, with some divine mathematics. He says it's as if it's five 
minus one equals zero. So it's five, these five different gifts lifted off here to the extreme. It says, if I have all of those, but I'm lacking love, it's, it's nothing. It's a zero. Or Jerry Bridges describes it this way in similar kind of mathematical language. He says, if you take a piece of paper and you start writing zeros on it, and you go all the way across, zero, 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 you fill a whole line with zeros. Okay, kids here, they're in the math classes. How much do you have? Nothing, if it's all zeros. He says, but, but if you add a one to the beginning, all of a sudden there's value there, immense value. And he says, that's what it is. It's like these gifts... But lacking love, it's like writing a bunch of zeros across the page. But with love, now these things become significant tools used by God. Let me give you an example of this. A man named Greg Livingstone, he was the director of a ministry called Frontiers International. And their ministry worked primarily in Muslim-speaking countries to reach Muslims for Christ and plant churches. And he described just a an eruption of converts coming to Christ out of Muslim backgrounds in, uh, for example, Algeria. So they saw 50,000 come to Christ over about a 15-year period. And, and he said, you know, what, what, do we, what do we attribute that to? Now, on the one hand, obviously, it's God's sovereign work in drawing people. But he says, from a human perspective, yes, we were sharing the gospel. We were, we were looking for ways to proclaim Christ. But what really opened the door is we started this ministry to... Mothers and children, and we, we helped over 14,000 mothers and babies. And it was that act of mercy that just cracked open the door to the gospel. Chris Kane, who works in the Dearborn, Michigan area, a missionary that we support and, and works with a similar people group. That's what he said over and over again when he comes back. He said it's, it's often just faithful love for people that, that opens the door to ministry. That's this more excellent way. Before we get into the specifics then of what love really looks like, I just want you to consider for a moment here that this is a challenging passage because of the way it causes us to evaluate our own lives. But before you feel the weight of that conviction, it's good to consider the fact that Jesus perfectly exemplifies this towards you. Not only, of course, in his speech and knowledge and faith and self-sacrifice. But in every other aspect of his life, he was the epitome of love, and not just in a general sense, but in a directed sense towards you. And so passages that urge us to walk in love often start with his example. So Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, be, be imitators of God. Follow his imitation as beloved children, as children who are loved and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Before you think, man, I need to be like this, and that's true. I mean, there's a convicting aspect of this. It's good to remember that Jesus is like this perfectly towards you. You are loved by him. He is perfectly patient and kind towards you, completely self-sacrificial and giving up his very life for you. That's who he is, and now we can can reflect that back. But there is a point for honest self-reflection here. Maybe you think, maybe, maybe you want to teach. Maybe you have a desire to teach. Maybe it's um, you know, in a preaching role. Maybe it's teaching a class. Maybe it's teaching kids. But the honest self-reflection is, do you love the people you're teaching to? 
Otherwise, it's just a desire to perform. Do you love the people you're teaching? You care about doctrine, but do you love people? Is that why you care about doctrine? Because you want them to know truth. Or is it just an academic exercise? Maybe you want to serve. Maybe it's in a way behind the scenes. But do you love the people you're serving? You want to lead worship. But do you love people? You have faith. So you're a strong Christian. But, but do you love people? Maybe you're at church every Sunday and there's a seat carved out for you. You know just where you're going to sit every time. But do, you, but do you love people? You're generous with giving, but do you love people? That, that's what this passage causes us to, to have to ask and answer. But the natural question then is, I, I don't know, what, what does love look like? like how, many, how many songs are about that, right? I want to know what love is, you know? We, we sing about that. There's so many songs on the radio about that. This passage tells us. It doesn't leave it just kind of fuzzy. Well, like, I don't know. I mean, I have affection for people. Or, you know, I kind of lower my voice when I'm talking to children. Is that loving? You know? No, it doesn't leave it fuzzy. It gets really specific. And it gets to actions. Each of these are, are verbs. Saying things that we should do if we are loving. We're only going to look at two of them today because I want to give them good time and in weeks to come we'll develop the others. We're going to turn now to these active characteristics of love. And active is a key word. They're not just characteristics. They're active things as people who love that we should be characterized by. The first one is that love is patient. Translation might even say long-suffering. And in fact, that's a very literal way to translate it. The word for patient is the word macrothumia. And there's a word we've talked about for anger sometimes. It's the word thumos. In some classes on anger, we've brought this up. Thumos is like a wrath, like an explosive type thing. This word macrothumia, it's that same word at the end. Uh, anger, wrath. And it means to be slow to wrath, slow to anger. And if we're to grow in it, it's helpful to see that this is true of God. God is slow to anger. He is patient. Numbers 14, 18, it's actually quoting from Exodus 34, 6. It says, the Lord is slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. That's who God is. That's who he is towards you. He is slow to anger. And we should all be very glad that it's not just a capricious anger that erupts at a moment's notice. He is slow to anger. In his being slow to anger, he is patient with us in a way that leads us to repentance, Romans says. Romans 2.4 says, Do you think lightly of the riches, not the meagerness, but the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do you ever reflect on that? That God is kind and he is patient in a way that should lead us to want to come to him. Because in our sin, we don't have to fear that if we come, he will reject. No, it says, all who come to me, I will not cast out. He leads us. He draws us to, to repentance. And it says, patience. He's patient even in his return. Some people might wonder, why is Jesus taking so long to come back? Well, part of that answer, he says in 2 Peter 3, 9, says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, 
Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In his patience, he's waiting. He's giving people an opportunity to repent, to turn to him. In his patience, his kindness, he wants people to come. The Lord is patient. He's patient in the salvation of people. We're going to skip over Romans 9 here. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is talking about himself. The very Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians 13. He's talking about himself. He says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He prefaces it in this this way of saying, This is a true, trustworthy statement. Jesus came to save sinners. If you're a sinner, he came to save you. Among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. It's a remarkable statement. Paul's saying that his very salvation was to be a living demonstration of God's patience. So so imagine this. Uh, So kids, if if you're a child in here, imagine your your parents introducing you to somebody and they, they put their arm around you and they say, this child was given to me so I can show people how patient I really am. <laughs> Would that make you feel very good? Like, well, thanks, thanks, Mom. <laughs> no, because we recognize you know, that that's saying something about us. And Paul's saying, I- I'm a living demonstration of God's patience. Well, why walk through this? Because you might think, I want to grow in patience, but I don't know how. Well, part of it is considering God's patience. It's growing in, in insight. Proverbs 19.11 says this, A person's insight gives him patience. And his virtue is to overlook an offense. Insight into what? Into the nature of God and God's patience. Think into the nature of people. The the frailty of people, the, the rebellion of people, even your own rebellion against God and yet his patience towards you. And the more you understand that, the more you can be patient to others. But even just insight into what others are going through. Maybe, maybe it's a child that you're having a hard time being patient with and, and yet you learn about something that went on that day at school that was very difficult that might make it easier to be patient with them at night because there's insight there. Maybe there's a, a cashier at the gas station that is rude to you and you're, you're irritated and then you learn that there's a recent medical diagnosis that has them distracted and fearful. Does that insight make you more patient? You know, maybe somebody like cuts you off in traffic and you look over and they're, they're on their phone and you're so frustrated and then, you know, maybe they just got some really bad news on there and they're distracted. I mean, they're probably like on Instagram, but like maybe they're not. Right? What I'm saying is we don't know. We don't know what's going on inside somebody. But some insight can help us to grow in patience. Melissa Kruger has three really helpful questions on self-assessing our own patience. And, And on the back of your sermon notes, each week there are some discussion questions, reflection questions. Some, some of our small groups use those. But it can be helpful just for kind of your own consideration. And, and I think I listed those in there. It's these questions of, in what areas of your life are you struggling to demonstrate patience? Is there a particular person uh, with whom you find it difficult to be patient? How does your impatience manifest itself? Anger, annoyance, sarcasm, judgment, discontentment. How does impatience show up? 
What's the underlying reason for your impatience? Is it pride? Is it control? Comfort? Fear? Selfishness? Distrust? What, what is behind it? Some honest reflection like that, kind of that insight, I think can help us to grow in patience. Love is patient, and then love is kind. It's really the flip side of the same coin. The, the two terms are really related. Patience is, is more of a passive sense of being slow to anger, not reacting against people in situations. Kindness is more active of doing good for people. We often see them together in the passage we just read, Romans 2.4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Tolerance and patience really together there, but, but this kindness and patience. God being patient with us, slow to anger, and acting kindly toward us. So in the same way, to say that love is kind, it means to, to function in a helpful manner, is the way one Greek dictionary defines it. Another person describes it this way. Kindness is a readiness to do good, to help, to relieve burdens, to be useful, to serve, to be tender, to be sympathetic to others. Kindness is love in work clothes, somebody said. So it's more than just words. It, I mean, it might have to do with a gentle tone of voice rather than a harsh tone of voice, but it's also just thoughtfulness, a helpfulness, a, a sympathy towards people. This should characterize all believers. Love is to be like this. It should characterize leaders in particular. 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul writing to Timothy, this pastor in training, and he says, the Lord's bondservant, the Lord's servant, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. We see again kindness and patience there together. All that are the Lord's bondservants, which in a sense is all believers, are to demonstrate that. But in particular, those that, that teach, those that lead. The Virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, one of the things it says about her, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So a virtuous woman is not merely wise, although that's part of it as well, but is kind and kind to people. The two ought to go together. All right, I want to wrap up with just some application, but we're going to keep building on some of these terms uh, next week. Just to apply what we've already seen, though. First, soak up God's patient and kind love for you. Before being like, oh, I just need to do this, it's good to remember that God is like this towards, towards you. And if we skip over that, it can just become this moralistic thing I just have to gut out, and we separate it from God's real and present love. We've already seen several passages on this, that God is kind, God is patient, great quote from Matt Smethurst. He says, if you have a high and soaring view of God's sovereignty, but you don't have a high view of his kindness, you have a low view of God. We often talk, and for good reason, about having a high view of God's sovereignty, a high view of God, that he is in charge of his world, he is sovereign, he rules his creation down to every atom. And yet, if we affirm that, we have a low view of his kindness then we're ultimately having a low view of God because that is an attribute of his as well. God is kind. God is kind. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Another key, classic chapter that emphasizes love. 
This is 1 John 3, and he begins it this way. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. To those who have come to saving faith in Christ, he says, you are his beloved child. He has lavished his love on you. A little bit later, in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. So if you are to excel in this more excellent way of love in 1 Corinthians 13, it starts with soaking in the reality of his love for you so that it can be poured out to others. We love because he first loved us. And then second, love is what it does. I think that's what we can say from these verbs that we began to unpack in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not merely saying, you, know, you might say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, think, I think I'm a loving person. But the people in your own home say they're not a loving person, right? Because they live with you. And they say, yeah, I mean, you know, dad says he loves us at the end of the night. But all day he has not been patient. He has not been kind. He's not been loving. Even if you say I love you there, love is ultimately displayed. It's acted upon. They're, they're active things. 1 John 3.18 emphasizes that again as well. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Does mean we don't love with our words? Of course. We should have loving words. We should, we should heap praise upon our family. We should tell them we love them. It's not to say we shouldn't do that. But if it's only that, then as we've seen, it's not real love. We are to love in deed and in truth, in our, in our actions that display that. But just like in everything else, our love falls short. Our love is an imperfect love. And so even if you memorize this passage and you wake up in the morning with a commitment to be patient, that might end before the first cup of coffee, right? <laughs> even with good intentions. And so it's good to remember that just like in everything else, Jesus loved perfectly in your place. At the heart of the gospel is the great substitution of Christ. His life lived on your behalf. His death on your behalf. So that your love is imperfect and yet his was perfect. And God has accepted that life and credited it to you. It's the heart of the gospel. This great exchange where our sin goes to Jesus as we trust in him. And his righteousness goes upon us. And that righteousness is in perfect love as well. So we rest there, and then we say, God, help me to love others as you have loved me. Let's pray.